Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam. And I'm Dr. Damian Kristoff. And I'm Dr. Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. And gentlemen, today we have an important topic. We are human beings, all of us listening to this call, and, and we're going to be talking about genetics. Yes. We're going to talk about specifically why genetics affects you and how it affects you on a daily life and how you can actually change it. Well, I don't know. if Can we change our genes? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Mm. So, Damo, what would you like to start off off with regards to genetics? Well, let's frame it first, I reckon. Why don't we just uh, try and work out where this whole understanding came from? So when, when they were looking at... Um, when Francis Crick, you know, first established that there was actually a, a gene or DNA, you know, way back in the late 50s, he discovered that, uh, well, what he postulated was that the gene or the DNA would be the control mechanism for the whole of the body. In, in other words, that the genes that you were given were was the way in which your life was going to play out. Now, the way in which he postulated this would take place was what he called the central dogma. Now, dogma is a belief in something that hasn't been proven. And so the central dogma, uh, which is what mainstream medicine uh, you know, works with essentially, uh, which is, I suppose, a belief or a religious belief because that's what dogma is, uh, says that DNA controls the whole of the body and it makes uh, provision to code for something called RNA, which then codes for proteins. And then the proteins are the elixir of life, essentially. And so it's essentially that DNA decides what's going to happen. RNA is then the uh, the code for that. And then the protein is the substrate of the RNA. Now, that's the way they said everything would happen. And so when they went in to then find out what this human genome consisted of, how many genes did the human genome contain, they expected to find a gene for every single disease known to man, plus more, plus some, because they recognized that there wasn't, you know, we, we didn't know everything about the genes at that stage or the human body at that stage. And so they thought that they'd find at least 330,000 genes. That was what they postulated. And then they, they thought that if they expanded that out, they might find at least half a million genes that would then help them understand um, every single cause for every single disease in the human body. Sounds pretty bold, doesn't it? Now, yep. huge Sorry. statement, massive statement. And so what, what they did do is when they unraveled the, the human DNA and they found all these genes, what they realized was there was, there was a significant amount less uh, genes than what they'd expected. In fact, what they realized was that there was nowhere near enough genes to actually code specifically for each individual disease or each individual variant of each disease for every single human on the planet. And so their whole system, I suppose, just fell to pieces. And so what they had to then try and understand was, well, if that's the case, then maybe it's a combination of genes that actually gets together and then decides on the outcome of the, of the, the way in which the human will live its life. But what Dr. Bruce Lipton found was that there seemed to be some kind of control mechanism that was outside of genetic control. And so essentially what he, he postulated and what he suggested, and Bruce Lipton is a, he's a geneticist, human geneticist. He was involved in the Human Genome Project in the early days. What he recognized was that, were, that the, the project itself was ignoring one fundamental thing, 
And that fundamental thing was the control over the genes. And he calls that epigenetics. So epi meaning above and genes meaning well, genetics meaning genes and, and the DNA. So he said that there was something outside of the, of the genes that actually uh, caused the cells to, um, to behave in a particular way. And he was able to show this because what he, what he worked out was that the nucleus of the cell, which was thought to be the brain, which is where the DNA is kept, they, they thought that the, the nucleus of the cell, the little thing that they thought was the brain center, if that was taken out of a cell, the cell could continue to live for a period of time and i think you know i'm just i'm throwing this date this period of time out there i think he said it was like three weeks so they removed the 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 actual nucleus of the cell out of the cell and the cell with all of its organelles and everything else that was in there except the dna had been removed continued to behave the same way it's supposed to continue to produce proteins the way it's supposed to remove waste the way it's supposed to in other words it didn't need what they perceived to be the brain of the cell to keep it alive, keep it living, keep it going. It actually managed to live by itself. They realized at that point, or at least Bruce realized at that point, that there was a control mechanism outside of the DNA that enabled something to live. And he called this epigenetic control. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Yeah, awesome. It's really important, isn't it? And it's such a huge change in the way we understand the way the body works to start thinking that, Maybe the genes aren't quite the be all and end all that they thought that, that we we thought they were. Um, and I remember hearing Bruce explain this one time, and I really loved the way he explained it because he talked about the way these proteins, this epigenome, wraps around the DNA. Um, and so he said that you know the the gene then is kind of like the library. You know, it's the information. There's just this huge amount of information there. But but what's really important is not necessarily what information is there, but it's actually what information you read. So he said, you know, if you think about this like this library, and then what you want to do is imagine that across each of those bookshelves, there's kind of one of those sliding doors that you can lock so that you can't actually get at those books. Uh, so what then becomes important is not necessarily just which books are there, because that's obviously still important, what genes you actually have, but just as important as that is then what genes you actually read, so which ones you actually use to create the, that RNA, to create that protein that then creates all of the different processes that go on inside of that cell. Um, so then we need to start looking at, well, okay, if, if it's not just what genes we've got, if it's which genes we use, well, then what influences which genes we use? Um, and this is where Bruce really started looking at uh, the cell membrane as being a really important part of that. So, um, you know, the cell membrane is, is the barrier around the outside of the cell. Um, and Bruce has postulated that, that rather than the nucleus being the brain of the cell, then actually the cell membrane is much more like the brain of the cell because that's what actually controls what comes in and what goes out of the cell. It controls which proteins it allows in, uh, which signals get into the cell um, and actually have an impact on that epigenome, which then has an impact on which part of that gene we read. Um, so, so what we see then is that the gene is like the blueprint. You know, it's the blueprint we use to create everything in our body and everything in our, um, in our cell. Um, but it only does that when the right signals come in um, through that membrane and reach the, the nucleus. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, absolutely. 
and uh, and that's spot on. And so what you're saying there, basically, Brad, and this is my understanding of it as well. And certainly, you know, having listened to Bruce over you know the last decade, and he actually lectured at the college that I studied at, which was you know imagine that. And I've had dinner with Bruce, and it's it's cool. Like it's 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 enough food to fill your brain for a lifetime. It's amazing. So I uh, you know, but when he's when he explains it, he he talks about he, just that there's. And he pictures, he does this, this beautiful little picture of it and you get this little signal that flies in. It gets caught by something that's like an antenna and this antenna uh, sends a message to inside the cell to then trigger a reaction from the gene and then the gene, of, of course, then starts to unwind and unravel. The RNA gets, comes out and then the protein gets born. And so it's uh and he says that it only ever takes place if the signal is right. So if there's a particular signal that the genes are looking for, to code for a particular protein. If the signal's wrong, then it doesn't code for that right protein. It actually will code for something totally different. So in other words, what he's saying is that if Brett, I'm just saying you, or Lawrence, if one of you guys had the gene that coded for heart disease, for example, you would need environmental factors to turn that gene on or to not turn the gene on but to, to, to transcribe from that gene. I think so that the makes most sense. critical point. Right? That's the most critical thing that you said, said right now to bring it all together now. Yes. So for those people listening, they're like, where, where are they going with this? Like, where's, what's this? This has to do with anything to do with health and wellness. That's that point right there about being turned on and turned off is the key point of everything we just talked about so far. So carry on. I just want to make sure that people don't just skip over that. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and that makes sense because what we know when we start looking at these diseases, you know, we often talk about these various different diseases as being, you know, inverted commas, genetic disorders. Um, and a lot of those diseases we talk about, you know, we might talk about heart disease or we might talk about diabetes or, or whatever, or cancers perhaps, and we talk about the genetic component to that or the, the, uh, the inherited component to that. And what we've been trying to find is, well, what's, if there's an inherited component, if there's a genetic component to that, well, what's the one gene that you have that then causes it? And so they've started looking, and they've been looking for, for years now to try and find, well, what's the one gene that causes heart disease? And, and what they're expecting to find is, well, if the DNA is truly in control of everything and, and you know, having that gene causes the heart disease, then it would make sense that every single person who has that gene gets that heart disease. And we know that that's not true. Mm. You know, we know that when we look at the stats, that just doesn't happen for virtually any disease. You know, there's a few minor exceptions to that. You know, we look at, for instance, um, Down syndrome. You know, we know that if you've got that 21st chromosome, then you end up with a disease. The extra there's a one. few things that are mm. that true genetic disorder where if you have the gene, you end up with a disorder. Yeah. Um, but for most things, that doesn't happen. Um, and the right. reason for that is this epigenetics. There's something else controlling whether, how we read those genes and which genes we read that then affects whether that person who might have that predisposition to heart disease, they might have that, once again, inverted commas, heart disease gene, but it's that epigenetic control that determines whether that goes from just having the gene to actually then having the disorder. Um, yeah, that's just right. Just having the gene by itself doesn't get you there. That's right. So what we're going to move into now is basically we explained that the, the base, the fundamental um, biology of it, I guess, of genetics, and now we're going to get into exactly what, environmental triggers or what lifestyle triggers that you involve yourself in every single day that actually switches certain genes that are on and certain genes off that that's going to affect you. So let's talk about the major factors that we know of at the moment uh, through science that are actually influencing our genetic potential. 
Well, one of the things, Lawrence, and you know, this kind of opens up a big can of worms because it's you know, it's such a touchy subject. And then, you know, if we we break it down to the, I suppose, the most basic of all genes, um, we might look at, say, blood type, for example, because that's a genetic variant. But one of the things that I just want to go back to what Brett was saying before, before we move on, Brett was saying that for the most part, where you know everyone's pretty much spot on, perfect. It, it's postulated. It's it's thought to be that 97% of every single human being on the planet, so 97% of all of us are absolutely perfect genetically. In other words, only 3% of the population actually has a genetic defect that will actually cause a genetic disease. And that, I reckon, is amazing. Because how often do you hear somebody say, oh, you know, that person's fat, so, you know, and, and... the mum and dad are fat, so that kid is going to be fat. Um, or mum and dad have got heart disease, so that's how I got heart disease. Or mum and dad got cancer, so I'm bound to get cancer, and certainly I'm going to get breast cancer. You know what I mean? So there's that there's that assumed genetic responsibility for a disease. But when you look at the figures and you look at the numbers, it's staggering to think that 97% of the population have perfect genes and only 3% actually have a genetic defect that actually renders them susceptible or you know, uh, vulnerable to a genetic disease itself. So it, it means that there's environmental factors that you can control that actually will alter your outcome. So let me just put this into perspective. I met with some people the other day um, who, have a, who have a strong familial link to a particular type of cancer. Um, they both, uh, the people that, are, that I'm speaking about, have um, a... A, a cancer gene that uh, is, that appears to be strong. It seems to flow through the family. And uh, what we had to discuss and we had to talk about was ways in which um, you, they could intervene to, one, prevent the gene from being turned on, or, two, uh, trigger a reverse process of if the gene had been turned on, how do we turn it off? And that provides it's, – it's such an exciting field in that you've got to look for the triggers that are in the person's lifestyle to be able to uh, say, hey, hang on a second, what you're doing there could be actually, in fact, turning that gene on. And, and I think that's where we, we could go with this discussion right now. What do you think? Yeah, Sounds definitely. Great. Well, it's so, exciting. So, so we know – know that there's stuff out there that can affect these genes and can turn these genes on. Um, and there's a lot of research there to show it now. You know, we know we've seen the link now over the last you know, few years and decades between um, these disorders that we traditionally thought of as being genetic disorders, or perhaps not traditionally, but in more recent times we'd started thinking of being genetic disorders. Um, but we're now starting to see links there where we can look at, for instance, cancer. And we can see a really strong link between various aspects of your diet and your likelihood of getting cancer. Um, you know, we're seeing all sorts of things about, you know, just simple stuff like what sort of fruits and vegetables you're getting into yourself. Um, and we can see that that's actually having an impact on your risk of developing cancer, which yeah. immediately tells us that there's more to this than just the pure genes, that what we're actually putting into our mouth in terms of food is going to have an impact on which of those genes get expressed, on how they get expressed, and our likelihood of, you know, if we have got that predisposition to cancer, our likelihood of that then converting from just being a predisposition into an actual you know, episode of An event. cancer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we know that what sort of stuff we're eating is definitely having an impact on that. And Damien, you probably can go into a lot more detail on, you know, specifics of that, I'm sure. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because if we look at let's you know take for example some of the cancer genes that have been um, discovered and you know they've been named you know and we know one for example which is the BRCA gene you know which is the breast cancer gene um, and we've also heard of the HER gene so the the one that they they talk about Herceptin being um, you know really effective in managing which you know let's not go into that discussion tonight but. Um, you know, we're very aware of these hormonally sensitive genes um, that if if the wrong hormonal combination is in play in a female body, it will trigger the genes to be expressed. You know, for example, the BRCA gene, which is the breast cancer gene, um, and also the HER gene, there's also another gene um, which they know about, and I, it's just escaping at the moment, but it's to do with um, ovarian cancer. Uh, these genes... Um, are often very, very responsive to hormones um, or to hormone combinations within the body. So it could be the right amount or the wrong amount of estrogen or the right amount or the wrong amount of progesterone or testosterone. And so there's certain foods that we might eat that could actually, in fact, trigger these hormone interactions within the body that may be inappropriate. And so what's really exciting is that we can now look at the way in which uh, the human body of a particular person has been designed to deal with, say, the excretion or the elimination of certain types of hormones. So, for example, uh, we can literally look at the way in which a woman's body can clear out estrogen, whether it's down a healthy pathway of estrogen removal or down an unhealthy pathway of estrogen removal. And then if you link that to their genetic um, or their phenotype, their genotype, we can actually uh, talk to them about and counsel them about uh, whether or not they've got increased risk of breast cancer or cervical cancer and then what sorts of things can they do what can they eat what things can they avoid or what can they take supplemental wise what sorts of things can they change their mindset and their behaviors and their lifestyle to actually uh, decrease the risk or the propensity or the predisposition to developing one of these types of cancers and it's really exciting and so you know i don't want to i suppose mention any one particular food guys because you know people listening to this this podcast will go oh my god i've got to avoid that just in case i've got that gene um and it could cause you know significant alarm but there are certainly foods that we find now in in mass production in many of the foods that we actually buy um you know and brett you and i and lawrence well we could argue to the cows come home with anybody about what is actually a food and what's considered a food because some things that are on the shelves at, at supermarkets really shouldn't be foods i'll um, say many things Dave. yeah well let's say that 90 percent of the supermarkets shouldn't be considered foods and the rest of it um most of us don't eat enough of so it's um you know the things that we buy that are packaged often contain the things that will be I suppose let's say they're deemed to be somewhat carcinogenic by the influence on hormonal or genetic behaviour. And, uh, and you know, that in itself, that comment could open up a massive can of worms if it's taken the wrong way. So, you know, if, uh, what I'd like to say is that the best thing to do from a food point of view would be to try and eat everything natural. And if you can go even further, you know, move towards organic, then that, of course, would be even better. But you want to stick as close to natural as you possibly can. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if we want to eat foods that they're gonna that our genes are gonna know how to deal with, that our genes are gonna be able to cope with, then it makes sense that you know we know our genes haven't changed much in the last you know hundred thousand years, right? Uh, we know that our diets have changed dramatically in the last say five or ten thousand years. So it makes sense if we want to eat foods that are congruent with our genes, then it's gonna be those foods that we've always traditionally eaten. You know the foods that were around, you know, perhaps a hundred thousand years ago, rather than the ones we've developed in the last fifty, hundred, several thousand years. 
Yeah. Right? So, so the real foods, the things that grow on trees, the things that run around out in the field, you know, they're the things that are actually going to be congruent with our genetics that our genes are going to know what to do with, basically. Well, the foods um, that are basically our genes are coded for to, yeah. to, be, to be able to read them and digest them and, and process them properly. Yeah. Precisely. Well, and so we know it's not just the, uh, the food either that's having an impact here. You know, we know there's more and more research coming out showing the links between exercise and chronic diseases. Um, yeah. And it is often these chronic diseases that we hear talked about as being the genetic diseases. You know, the, the heart disease, the strokes, the diabetes, the cancer are probably the four most common ones we hear of as being linked to genes and genetics. Um, but, you know, as we said earlier, we know that those, the rates of those diseases has gone up exponentially in the last couple of decades. They've just gone absolutely through the roof. Mm. Um, and what we know is that it's not because our genes have changed, it's because our lifestyles have changed. Um, and one of the things that's changed a lot is the amount of exercise we do. Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, we're not doing the same sort of exercise. We're not doing the same amount of exercise um, as what we did previously. Um, and we know that by doing that exercise, you know, we do reduce our risk of heart disease. You know, we can improve our chances of dealing with cancer. Um, so it just shows that by, by doing that exercise and getting a nice, well-rounded exercise, we can actually have an impact on our genetics, on those, you know, once again, those things we think of as being genetic diseases. But actually what we're doing is having an impact on that epigenome um, and which of, those, which of those genes are expressed and with the way that those genes are utilized, which is really important to remember. Um, so we need to be looking at the food. We need to be looking at the exercise as well. Yeah, so that if you don't really know, if you can't, if don't, don't figure out what's like food to eat or what exercise, go, read, go, go back to our episodes that we, when we talked about food. And we also did an episode on uh, exercise as well. So we I think the third thing we should talk about is also perception. We talked in our last episode on stress and how that affects our lives. And uh, I'm pretty sure I heard this from Bruce Lipton. Uh, he talks about this study. I think it's an, it's an amazing study. He talks about how they took, scientists took, these rats and they put them in two environments and one environment was uh, they put the rats in a stressful environment so they actually had stressors in there and then they put another uh, the, the other sets of rats into a calming environment where there was no stress and then they let them breed and what they found was and they actually oh it's not the greatest <laughs> um cruelty to animals i guess but you took the brains of these <laughs> kids of the babies of these rats and they dissected them and they wanted to see how stress actually affected um their growth and what's interesting about that study was that they found that the rats, the babies that came out of the rats in the stress environment, found that they actually developed brains that were built more for, actually, and also not just the brain, but also the build was built for muscle and, um, and built for, um, for fight or flight types of situation, more male-dominated features, whereas the, um, the relaxed and, and environment rats, most most of the babies actually grew up to be more, um, more the female-dominated genes where they're more thinking part, where a cortex part of the brains were actually really large compared to the other side of the brains where it was mostly the limbic brain and um, uh, sort of the, um, the lizard brain type of brain what we talked about in the last episode. So what that shows you is that, and, and they, their reasoning for this is that the babies, even though they would not have any you know, perceived stress in their life, their stress came from their mothers. Mm. Right? Because the mother was put into an environment of stress, the babies have no perception to the outside world. Right? So this baby that's growing inside the mother's womb has no perception of what's going outside. So their environment now is the mother. So if the mother is in, is in a stressful state, if she, if, her, if she perceives herself to be in a stress state, she is actually providing an environment of stress for the child that's growing. And then what happens is that the, as they're growing through the pregnancy and while in labor – 
the the ant the, the rats and they're attributing this to the humans as well. They're going to pick genes that are going to support them when they come out of the womb. This you is know, it. This is it. Now, I, I'm just going to take us back a couple of steps because what we what we started talking about there were the signals. And so, you know, we spoke earlier on, Brett and I uh, initially spoke about, um, you know, the signals and, and epigenetic control. And we have to keep in mind that it's the signals that come through the body that bind onto the cell that then signal for the DNA to unravel, to then code for RNA, which then codes for protein. This is the process. Now, what Brett and Lawrence have just been through is the discussion of the signals. So the signal of stress, which is a signal which could um, alter alter control of the genes, um, is actually epigenetic control. Um, Brett spoke about exercise and the effect of exercise on the genes. Um, I mentioned before about nutrition and how that could alter the genes. These are all the signals that we're talking about. The signals themselves are the things that are in your environment. And so it could be chemicals in the environment. It could be chemicals in your food. It could be um, the nutrients that you're taking. It could be uh, the stressors that you have in your life. It could be, like Brett said, you know, we're not exercising enough or we're exercising the wrong way. Um, it could be that we're selecting the wrong foods to eat for our genotype. And I did say earlier on that the one of the simplest things that we can do to measure our genetic um, uh, variant is to look at our blood type. And, you know, I, I really love the stuff, the work that Lauren Cadane's done in, in talking about the Paleolithic uh, style of, of life and, and, and living and eating and, and existing. And I also really like uh, what Dr. Peter Diadamo talks about uh, in that he discusses the evolution of the, geno- uh, the genome and the human species uh, beyond the Paleolithic days. And so we go from O-type blood being very Paleolithic uh, to B to um, A, B and then to A. And so we move, you know, all the way through these, these, I suppose, genetic variants to then arrive at a point where now people can start to have more nuts and seeds and vegetarian-style things and still get lots of protein from them um, if you've got A-type blood. But if you've got O-type blood, then, you, you know, you're looking at eating more carnivorous-style or omnivorous sort of lifestyles where you're eating a, a bit of plant, a bit of animal, getting some fat and you know you're kind of doing all right now there are also ways in which you can manage the signals going into your body that would actually alter the way in which your genes behave and and so what we want to what i'd like to make sure that everybody understands who's listening to this call is that when we talk about something that you know we might even go and talk about vitamins in a second they are signals that can alter the way in which your genes behave and and that's what we're talking about as epigenetic control yeah and you know, before we go on from there, I think there's one important step that we haven't spoken about here, um, and that is that we haven't spoken about how these messages from our environment actually get to the cell, right? Because that's really important. We have to be able to, um, we have to understand how that we under, how we measure the, the food, how we look at the exercise and the stress, and how that gets from you know our external environment to our internal environment, which is the cell. And so a really important part of this process is our nervous system uh, because that's what takes in all the information about that external environment, whether it's what food we've eaten, whether it's what sort of exercise or stress we've been under, whether it's you know, how sedentary we've been, whatever it happens to be in our external environment, the way that gets back to our brain is via the nervous system so that we you know, can comprehend what's actually been going on in the world around us. And then the way that then gets to the cell is also via the nervous system. So that the nervous system transmits that message from the brain then down to that cell membrane that we spoke about um, so that then the cell actually knows 
what's going on in that external environment. You know, the cell actually then is able to know what sort of foods you've been eating, what sort of stress you've been under, uh, what sort of exercise you've been doing. Um, so the nervous system is a really important part in this process because it provides that link between the two things we've just spoken about, between the external environment and then between what's going on in the cell. Um, so, you know, obviously the three of us are being chiropractors, you know, we work a lot with the nervous system and it's really important to understand that, um, you know, by removing interference from the nervous system, which is essentially what we do as chiropractors, we're really helping that transmission of those messages too. We're helping our cells and our epigenome deal with what we're seeing out in the environment better. Yeah, that's right. And it's also it's interesting to, to note too that the first thing that forms in the human body, once all the cells have you know, finished all their uh, mitotic um, divisions, what, the first thing that actually forms is the nervous system. And so every single cell within the body is a branch off the nervous system, the central nervous system. So there is a, a unique connection, connection from the little toe to the little finger to the brain. And uh, there's, there's no other... Uh, series or connecti- connectivity within the body that is as strong as what the nervous system connection is to every single cell within the body. And so that actually means that the nervous system controls every function. So everything from the immune system to respiration to elimination to absorption to utilization to metabolism, the nervous system controls all of that. So like Brett said before, you want to make sure there's no interference to the nervous system. You want to take away any neurological insult or any neurological uh, interference that could interfere or stop the flow of proper nervous system information so it's, it's so important the nervous system is crucial fantastic um we're gonna have to be wrapping up soon so any last final words for you guys with regards to genetics uh, look, I think it's the, as the science of epigenetics emerges and as it becomes you know, bigger and more exciting, and look, there's practitioners out there now that are doing nutrigenomic testing and many chiropractors and naturopaths and functional GPs are, are looking at nutrigenomic testing uh, to be able to sit down and counsel uh, their clients that about what sort of things that they can do to enhance their expression of their genes. And that's what epigenetics is all about. It's about understanding that you have control over your genes and that you can control the outcome. So if you're wanting to alter the direction of your life, so if you can see your life heading the same direction as your parents, you want to do something different about it, you have absolute control over that uh, from a genetic point of view by altering the influence over your genes and that's changing your lifestyle essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've pretty much just covered what I wanted to say, Damo, because you know what we hear all the time from people is that, well, there's nothing I can do about it because I've got the gene. You know, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what I eat or how I exercise because I've got the gene. So we're really trying to help people understand that in you know almost all cases, you know, the vast majority of cases, you can have an impact on that. You know, it's a gene is almost never a death sentence. You know, there's stuff you can do about it. Um, to alter the expression of that gene, to to change that um, that journey through your life. So um, just remember that you know, whilst there are the odd occasion where the, the gene is the gene and you can't do much about it, but in the vast majority of cases, there's stuff you can do by looking at your lifestyle and by looking at your health. Yeah, I mean, we we uh, Damien and I did a, a program called the Wellness Blueprint um, last year, and we you know went through a couple of seminars, and people had absolutely amazing results, hmm. uh, especially when we you know tested their genes and looked at it and modified their their plans and and created wellness plans for them, and it was just an absolutely amazing results. We might have to do another one of those sometime in the future. Yeah, I reckon well, it could be the go. Could be the go. Yeah. One other thing, you know, and just just so that you know that we are on the same page as every other health professional on the planet. 
epigenetic um, manipulation has been going on for decades and and mainstream medicine has been practicing this for years. You know, many people say that I have genetic cholesterol and so now I've got to take a statin drug. Or many people say I've got genetic um, a high blood pressure so now I've got to take um, blood pressure tablets. Now, essentially what's happening here, when you take the tablets, you alter the environment within the body, which encodes for a different response from the genes. So if, you're, if you've got genetic cholesterol, what the doctors are giving you is a statin drug which alters the genetic response to your environment so that you now no longer manufacture that style cholesterol. So they're already doing epigenetic controlling, but by using drugs that also have other side effects, you can now do it with nutrition and food and lifestyle and mindset. And so what we're doing is we're not tapping into a new science, we're just discovering a better way to manage it. I think that's a really important point. And I think if you want to keep on... uh you know, finding ways and how do you can influence your genes to and towards wellness and health. You just got to keep on listening to our podcast. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have, a, I have a feeling after this one, we might see a few comments down below. So uh, make sure you put your comments onto the website because I have a feeling there might be a, a big chat after this one going on with uh, with our listeners as well. So get involved. Mm. You know, one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to is, I'm not sure if you guys know, but we're actually going to be on the same stage as Bruce, Bruce Lipton uh, in February next year in Brisbane. And uh, maybe we'll have to, you know, coax him in to do a, a wellness show interview with him, yeah. and uh, he can go on to part two on genetics. Let's do it over dinner. I think we'll organise yeah. it. Mm. We'll definitely. definitely do that. Well, that's another great episode, guys. That was, you know, awesome information and great insights. And uh, as always, join us every single week at the www thewellnessguys.com leave your comments below this episode and all the episodes that you hear and tell us what you think you know like us on our Facebook page follow us on Twitter sign up for notices for each episode and uh, you can download us on on iTunes and make a comment on iTunes as well so until next week uh, begin creating wellness in your lives lead by example and help change the world and uh, for the better I'm Dr. Lawrence Tam I'm Dr. David Christoph and I'm Dr. Brett Hill and we're the Wellness Guys